New Spring family, man, I miss you guys. I can't wait till we can get back together, but today, I'm telling you, is gonna be really special. As we continue on our tour, if you will, of the seven churches in Revelation, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and get that out to Revelation 2. We're not gonna waste any time, but instead of just reading scripture today, I'd like to invite you to something, if that's okay. To instead engage in scripture with me, to maybe incite a little bit of an imagination and wonder as we think about what it might have been like to be a part of that church in Pergamum. Okay, so just think about it this way. Um, back in the day, you know, you couldn't just roll up to your local Lifeway, which I guess you can't anymore either. RIP Lifeway, we love you. But you couldn't just roll up to your local Christian bookstore and be like, hey, can I have the letter to the Ephesians, please? No, that's not how it worked. Letters were passed around from community to community. So maybe this church in Pergamum, maybe you've had the, the letter to the Ephesians read in front of your church. Maybe you've had... Galatians or Ephesians or the other Ian's read in front of your church, but it's rumored that there's one final revelation of Jesus Christ to the last living disciple, John, and this time it mentions your name. Imagine the excitement in town as you hear that it's gonna be read in front of your community today. As you walk into church, the excitement and anticipation, maybe you and your friends are whispering back and forth, what is Christ gonna say to us? A hush falls over the congregation as your leader stands up and he begins to read. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It's true. This is from Jesus Christ himself, you, you marvel at this reality, your heart rate picks up at the thought that Jesus Christ himself might be returning soon as John begins to reveal what Christ revealed to him. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum. <laughs> and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. There it is. The first mention of your name. You, you've never felt this way before. You're overcome with a sense of wonder and excitement, and yet fear at what Jesus may have to say to you. That heart rate picks up as John begins the first letter. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus, okay, you're not disappointed in Ephesus, you're just disappointed it's not you yet, but you love Ephesus, so let's see what Jesus has to say to them. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Yeesh, thankfully you're not Ephesus. But still, you say a quick prayer of repentance, just in case that is lingering in your heart. You're still praying as the next letter continues. And to the angel of the church in Please. Smyrna. Okay. Right. I mean, it's fine. You're just getting antsy. You're ready to hear about your church, but you love Smyrna. You have friends in Smyrna, and you're excited to see what Christ may have to say to them. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You marvel at Smyrna's perseverance. 
You know what it feels like to undergo persecution. You, you beg God to pour out more strength on them, your brothers and sisters, even as the next letter begins. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right. <laughs> okay, this is us. Everybody be quiet. Dan, be quiet. I wanna hear what Jesus has to say to us. I mean, to Ephesus, he appeared as the one who holds the seven stars in his hands. To, to Smyrna, he appeared as the one who's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I wonder how Christ himself will choose to reveal himself to us. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Sword, huh? It's mildly terrifying, but... It's okay, it's okay. I mean, I'm sure he's bringing a sword to fight for us, so at least he's coming. Let's see what he has to say to us. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's the truth. Yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. You remember your brother together. Antipas who refused to give up the name of Jesus Christ even as his very life was on the line. You thank God for his faith. You ask God for the same level of faith as Christ continues. I have a few things against you. Okay, here we go. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel right. yeah, I remember. so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Yep, you were afraid he was gonna say that last one. Your church is very familiar with both of these names. Some members of the church awkwardly <clears throat> clear their throats as Jesus finishes his plea. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. A long pause falls across the congregation. You look around at your brothers and sisters, they look back at you as if to say, we got a few things we need to talk about. And New Spring family, I would propose to us today, we got a couple things we need to talk about too. Because lest we forget, this was a real church with real people going through real chaos, much like you and I are going through real chaos in these days. But just like we've talked about, these letters in Revelation are not meant to confuse us, but they're meant to bring greater clarity to our chaos. And that's what I'm believing the voice of Jesus is gonna do in our midst today. So I'm gonna partner with the message of Pergamum and present three clarifying questions for us today. And I would 
I would encourage you to not let these just be the framework of my message, but let these be actual questions that you talk through in your group or that you FaceTime a trusted friend afterwards because these questions are meant to incite reflection and action inside of us, okay? Okay, so here we go. Question number one to bring clarity to our chaos is, where am I? This is probably the most popular uh, COVID question right now, especially if you're a mama, you've asked this. Where am I? What day is it? Which kid is missing? Where are my belongings and my sanity? Like you have felt this during COVID. But I would encourage you that this is a question that we need to consistently ask about our current reality. And even when you're in scripture and you come to a place that you don't know, ask, where am I? Because we cannot determine where we need to go unless we identify where we are. So let's talk about Pergamum. Where are we? Pergamum was the capital city of Asia Minor. It was a university city, hello, housing one of the region's largest uh, education centers and libraries with over 200,000 volumes, which would have been astronomical at that time. Um, And it was a pagan worshiper's paradise. I mean, this place had countless pagan temples, three to just the emperor alone, including one to this god. I'm gonna totally butcher how you say this, but it's I hooked on phonics, okay? It's spelled like this, Asclepios. And Asclepios was the god of healing and his image was actually one of a harmless snake. If that ain't biblical for you, go check out Genesis three, okay? So this was a capital full of power, full of education, and highly spiritual, and according to Christ, the very throne of Satan. Can y'all think of anywhere else in the world that is a world superpower, highly educated, and incredibly religious? Okay, this is why I love the word of God because it's timeless and it's timely. We have to realize, church family, that Pergamum is modern day America. Powerful educated, religious, and currently surrounded by tons of harmless snakes creeping into our churches. We have to identify the real enemy, okay? Because with every um, division and all the arguments going on, the enemy is the main manipulator and orchestrator of all of them, playing off of our sin to try to get one another to be the enemy. This is Satan's throne and we have to realize that Christ has given us the dominion to dethrone him. A president's not gonna do it, a different political leader. Only the king of kings can retake the throne. And so this is us, where are we? Well, we're in Satan's dominion, but now Christ has given it to us and we have to identify where we are. Christ is clearly identifying for us that he's very aware of where we live. Jesus commends the church here for keeping their eyes focused on him in the midst of all of it, telling them, hey, you are indeed holding fast even when your friend Antipas died. Listen to me very clearly. These are not weak people. Their faith was strong. And New Spring, I wanna tell you, you are not weak people. I see you holding fast the name of Jesus. I, I, I see you participating in our fasting and prayer, but I just want to encourage us today that we cannot just rely on the commendation of Christ when conviction is just as kind. His conviction is so kind. So ask yourself before we move forward, 
Where am I? Do I feel the spiritual battle going on? Like Dan talked about last week, do I feel the heat of persecution in these times? Because we can't move forward until we identify where we are. But now that we've identified where we are, let's go to question number two. What am I allowing? What am I allowing? Okay, after Christ's commendation comes his confrontation. Hey, I have a few things against you, just a few, but if left unaddressed, they can have dire consequences. He brings up these two names, Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Balaam and the Nicolaitans, okay? Um, I'm gonna give you some exegetical exercise, all right? Something that I learned in college. It is a great tool when you're trying to study scripture. If you come across names and you don't know where they are, one of the greatest theological forming exegetical exercises you can use when you get to names you don't recognize is to ask the question, who dat, right? Who, who is that? Okay, well, who dat, uh, you should ask that and then go seek out who it is in scripture. So who is Balaam and the Nicolaitans? Um, There's so much here that I do not have time to go into. I'd encourage you to go read Numbers 22 and 23, and then in Numbers 31, it actually reveals what Balaam did. But if I had to boil down everything about Balaam and the Nicolaitans, um, if if they had like one call to Pergamum and to us, it'd be this. Hey, Christians, compromise. If, you know, Balaam was leading worship, he'd probably be like, all right, church, will you please stand and compromise with me? That'd be his invitation. If they had um, core values like we do, it'd probably be pursuing compromising unity. And if they had one, like, tweetable phrase, it would be, you can still love Jesus and, right? I mean, we see clearly that violence didn't work on Pergamum. Like their friends are getting killed and still their faith is increasing. But let me tell you something about our real enemy, Satan. He doesn't feel the need to resort to violence when alliance is working just fine. A compromising and a sliding and a polite, unaccusing, slippery, slithery snakes coming into the church and completely blending in with Christian culture. He's fine with that. See, Balaam and the Nicolaitans, they had no problem with the Hebrew God. They were fine with it. They just taught um, some wrong things to go along with it because even they knew that God cannot stand compromise. He cannot do it. It goes against his very nature to not oppose compromise. I don't know about you, I love the fact that Jesus, our God, is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I love the the promise that he is steadfast until I come to a command that I don't necessarily like. But I cannot bet on the unchanging promises of God and then ask that he compromise some of his commands. If he's unchanging, then he is unchanging with all of it. His promises and his precepts and commandments, both are unchanging. God tells us like he told them, hey, I know where you live. I know it's hard out there today. Everybody's yelling, everybody's mad, everybody's angry elves, I understand. But a difficult environment never justifies compromise. 
So for us, what would our cultural compromise be? And listen, I'm gonna take it easy. I only got one thing today. I don't even have a few things. I have one thing that I believe if Jesus were to write to us today and say, hey, to the angel of the church in New Spring, write, please stop compromising kingdom peace for cultural comp. We've gotta stop sacrificing kingdom peace for cultural calm. Can we do something radical here today? Can we just go here? Could you possibly imagine with me in any world where this season might possibly just be called good? Listen, I am with all of you. I am begging God to crush COVID under his heel. I am begging him to raise up some some leaders, some men of God who will help annihilate racism. I am begging him for his man to be in office. I am begging him to come and restore peace. But I also feel this very strongly that Jesus is on an adamant mission right now that things do not, in fact, go back to normal. Because normal may have been very calm, but let me tell you, there was very few evidence of kingdom Shalom. That's right, we're going Hebrew today at 9.15 in the morning. Maybe you're familiar with shalom. This is a Hebrew term. If you go to Israel, this is how they will greet you. Shalom, shalom makes you feel bilingual, but that's all you know. Shalom is very different than we would describe peace here in our Western culture. In Western culture, you know, peace would be lack of conflict or war. That is not the definition in Hebrew. That is not kingdom shalom. Shalom is actually, true biblical shalom refers to an inward sense of completeness or wholeness, regardless of outside circumstances. Even think about with me that song that we love, The Blessing. Do y'all love that song? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where he's like, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. But the thing it ends with is, and give you peace. That's an actual priestly blessing that was given to Aaron in Numbers 6. But you know what's ironic about this scripture? I'm gonna lean because this is what like the good preachers do when they're about to make a point. What's ironic about that blessing in Numbers 6 is it's given to Aaron to bless the people with before they are about to go conquer the promised land. It is given to him a term of peace to go and to make war on evil. It's not him saying, hey, may things now just be calm, but may you have an inner inner peace, an inner steadfastness, an inner confidence as you go and actively drive out evil because my presence will go with you. Kingdom shalom is by no means calm. But I fear that the Christian compromise of the day is is to desire things to be calm versus actually and obviously and consistently driving out evil through his people. So listen, I'm gonna share with you just a few things that I ask God, okay, how do I know when I am doing this? Okay, so if, I'm just gonna read what he told me. So if any of this kind of stings or gut punches you, take it up with the Holy Spirit because this is, I'm letting you in on my inner conviction, all right? So I said, God, how do I know when I'm doing this, when I'm sacrificing, compromising, king of shalom for cultural calm? He said, okay, you wanna go there? 
not really, but here we go. He said, when you post more than you pray. Why we gotta talk about my social media like that. But when you post on social media more than you pray, posting on social media relieves the guilt, but praying would direct and deepen the right convictions. Number two, when you virtually comment more than you personally confront. Commenting requires no real investment in someone's life. You can distance yourself from their story, thus their pain, thus your responsibility to minister to them and help them carry their burdens. Number three, when you read more things to fuel your own opinion rather than find gospel truth. You don't want King of Shalom, you just want to win an argument. He knows I'm competitive. <laughs> Number four, when you don't read or look at educational things at all, because once you saw the truth, that would require something from you. Number five, when you pray more than you act. Praying is righteous, but you can sometimes use it to excuse your apathy. Acting would cause waves and require skin in the game. And number six, when you excuse sin more than you expose it. It may sound like grace, it may feel more loving, but it is actually damning. And it's that last one, y'all, that excusing sin in the name of love. This is one of the most harmless snakes slithering its way into our Christian culture right now. I wanna stir us up by way of reminder today that it is not actually loving at all to excuse sin. To do so, to assume that, is to assume that we are more loving than God himself. Because the Bible says that God disciplines those whom he loves. And listen, I understand that it can get very disturbing, very disruptive if we call out the sin around us, if we call out the sin of our family members, but we've got to stop excusing sin in the name of love, but instead in love, call out sin. There's a few things that even we say in this time and culture that is like sin excusing statements that is compromising inducing, maybe you'll recognize a few hey, man, that's just your truth. Or this one, I mean, that's just how I was raised. Or this one, yeah, but it's 2020. As if 2020 has some kind of trump card on the everlasting word of God. Hey, God knows their heart. I mean, they still love the Lord. Well, I'm not racist. And listen, I know even now you're thinking about conversations you've had or there's even some disruption in your heart. I know because I've had every single one of these conversations, but I'm telling you, it's like God has a spotlight out in our nation right now and he is exposing the sin that Satan has been trying to hide for generations and it is kind and loving for our God to expose the shadows where Satan has been taking dominion to restore it to us. And I know it's loud, but when you take a light out and you expose sin, things that I've never seen the light before tend to shriek. Like that's, just making sure you're still with me. But we've got to expose the sin knowing that that is exactly what our Savior did. When he lived on this earth, do you know how much disruption Jesus Christ caused? 
Everywhere he went, a crowd and disruption followed. He became the most famous man who's ever lived because of this, because the real power of the walking gospel will cause disruption. Wherever Jesus went, people who were lame were now walking around shouting his praise and it disturbed people. People who were blind now had sight and it disturbed people. People who used to be the least in society were elevated to a seat of honor and it disturbed people. Blue-collared fishermen, high-class tax collectors and law enforcers, backstreet drunkards and racially diverse Samaritans were all invited to the Divine's dinner party and it disturbed people. Former prostitutes followed like disciples. The religious were rebuked as vipers. Demons were cast out. The destitute were brought in. Tables got turned. Dead got raised. Traditions got challenged. Streets got crowded. Sin got confronted. Culture shifted and it disturbed people. Jesus allowed himself to be betrayed, arrested, deserted, mocked, beaten, nailed to a cross and bleed out every last drop of blood with no vocal objection except to say, Father, forgive them. And it disturbed people. I understand that this is the age of offense. But to be honest, I can think of no image more offensive than the scene of a bloody cross. I know this is the age of sanitation, but please, oh please, we've got to stop taking excusing sin Clorox wipes to a bloody cross scene. The splinters of the cross would have hurt. We can't sand them out. It is loving and kind to display the gospel in all of its glory and on both sides to, because to diminish the requirements of the gospel is to diminish the value of the gospel. And my gospel, our Jesus's gospel, is no bargain bin gospel. It is worth everything if it's worth anything. So the final question with that today is, number three, will I repent? And before, um, you know, we get all of us a little too excited to call out the sin of others, we have to realize that the easiest person to excuse and sin is me. I literally sat right behind me, right back there yesterday, and I asked God to purify me and cleanse me. Cut away anything in me that doesn't look like you. And I sat back there and I just wept. Can I invite you, church, that we need to remember what it's like to weep over sin? first in ourselves. We've been begging God to, for revival, and I'm telling you, it's on the way, but I believe that revival rides in on the repentance of his people, in us first. So here's the final invitation as we're gonna go into a song, and we're gonna ask God to search us. Church, we have to either let God's word cut us or compromise will kill us. That's why Jesus came with a sword. In Revelation 1, it says that it was coming out of his mouth, signifying the word of God. Now is the time for us to rise up, to study God's word like never before, to learn how to sharpen it and to wield it so that it can cut away anything in the world that does not look like Christ so that his glory may be put on more display. But I fear that maybe we are actually dulling the word of God by just attaching some scriptures to the end of our opinions and calling it God's truth. 
We have to wrestle with the word of God. Will it hurt? Yes. But it is so kind. It is so kind for God to cut away anything in us that does not look like Christ so that we can look more like the beauty of his son to a world that is so desperate to see his face. Will we repent? So right now what we're gonna do is um, I'm gonna invite you to even right now close your eyes wherever you are, unless you're driving. Jesus is there with you. I have some of the most holy times of my life in my car. And would you take whatever posture you, you need to to invite God to search you? David prays this himself. A man who is called a man after God's own heart, his friend. Search me, God. Know me. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Even as we begin this next song, I'm gonna invite you to take the space. Don't turn off today's service yet because I believe the real whispering of the Holy Spirit is about to begin. So I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna pray for you. And then we're gonna let the kindness of the conviction of the Holy Spirit work in our hearts. Father, I thank you. I thank you, I thank you, I thank you that you are jealous for your people. God, I thank you for the light of God's word that is exposing sin in these days. I thank you, God, that you're disturbing us, that you're shaking us awake. You're shaking me awake from any spiritual slumber. Thank you, God, that you are evicting spiritual dominion that's had claim in our state and in our nation, and you are reclaiming dominion through your people. And I pray right now over everyone who may get to watch this, the blessing of Aaron. I join with the faith of centuries, and I bless them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And the Lord give you kingdom shalom. In Jesus' name, amen.